Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Thanks for joining us here on Disaster Politics Podcast. I know it's been a while since we last talked, and I assure you it is well worth the wait. We've got a great show lined up for you. We start out with a panel of just some incredibly smart students out of Columbia University's School of uh, International and Public Affairs, and they're going to talk to us a bit about how they look at disaster resilience, being trained to go into the policy field, and how they're looking at long-term disaster resilience and disaster risk reduction, all under this umbrella of policy and sustainability development. I think you're really going to enjoy this panel. And then after that, we connect with uh, Professor Daniel Aldrich of Northeastern University, whose research has really turned upside down the way we think about disasters as more than an institutional problem and a logistics problem and an engineering problem. But who are the people at the center of it? Neighbors helping neighbors and social cohesion and social capital. And these are things that I think we've known in our gut for a long time, but he's really helping us understand with science, but also come up with solutions on how we can build this and how we can you know, increase our stocks of social capital and what that means for future disaster response and resilience. But enough out of me, let's hear it from the great guests we have lined up and I'll see you on the other side. All right, thanks for joining us today. So today we have something a little bit different. I'm actually surrounded by a bunch of colleagues, some uh, graduate students from the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and uh, taking a little different approach today. Instead of looking at disaster responders in the field and their linkage with politics, looking at folks uh, studying politics and going into the field of politics who have an interest in disasters. And so I'm really curious. Thank you guys all for being here today and, and look forward to sort of hearing your perspectives on, uh, on, on why disasters and how that links with what you're looking to do uh, in the world of policy. So thank you. Uh, why don't we go around first and maybe each of you guys can just uh, introduce yourselves uh, briefly and let us know, uh, you know, your name, uh, a little bit about the program and, uh, you know, why, why disasters? Why interest? Why did you make the trek all the way down here to uh, talk on a podcast about disasters? So um, you want to start? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Um, hey, guys. My name is Mima Mendoza. I'm a student at SJS uh, at Columbia SIPA um, and we're studying uh, environmental science and policy, which is a one year MPA program. Um, basically designed to um, meld both the sciences and the policy of um, envi uh, environmental um, studies and environmental policy. Um, I come from the Philippines, which is a highly climate vulnerable country, and every year we experience a lot of these uh, natural disasters ranging from the small to the very big. So this is very much personal for me and important uh, to my profession. Hi, my name is Jenna Lewine. I'm um, also in the ESP program at Columbia, and uh, my background actually focuses on energy, specifically renewables. And uh, before I came to this program, I was an AmeriCorps member, working with the uh, serving with the Minnesota National Guard, um, looking at energy efficiency and renewable energy projects to help them become uh, more resilient and self-sufficient so they could better serve the communities they were in and also make sure that their operations never got interrupted. Um, my name is Lauren Harper. I'm also in the Environmental Science and Policy Program at SEPA. Um, I joined the program because I was looking to make more impacts um, utilizing policy for environmental changes. And before I got to the program, um, I'm from Houston, Texas. And so in recent years, we've been experiencing more flooding events and um, climate related impacts. And so um, for that reason, I also worked in conservation. And for that reason, um, to protect those two things, I found it most important to probably be able to talk to policy and decision makers. And so that's why I joined the program. Uh, hey everyone, I'm Sid Shah. Uh, like Mima, Jenna, and Lauren, I'm uh, in the ESP program. Uh, my background is in conservation biology. Um, during the drought years in California, I was a field biologist. Uh, so I did a lot of like on-ground field research. Um, my interest basically stems from how are we going to preserve natural resources, uh, you know, in the face of these dynamic 
climates and these dynamic landscape changes. Yeah, so that's what I'm here. No, that's great. And thank you guys. And you all come from sort of different perspectives on this. I think we covered a couple different kinds of disasters just in introductions as well, too. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious, just uh, diving in on this a little bit more, is that, you know, that this notion of disasters and disasters in public policy, um, what do you guys see as kind of the, the, the biggest issues that we face, whether it's as a nation or if it's at the local level? Um, what are the things that, that are facing us that, that you think really contribute either to our vulnerability to disasters or recovery? I think I think there's a basic misconception of what exactly a disaster is, because a lot of people uh, are under the assumption that, you know, disasters are uh, like hurricanes or flash floods um, and forest fires, which they are. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But there are a lot of uh, intrinsic environmental actions at play that are a lot that are a lot more long term. Uh, I'm talking about drought. I'm talking about watershed disruption. I'm talking about fracking leading to, you know, water table contamination. So, you know, these are disasters that are ongoing and long term. And I think there is a, you know, this basic misconception that needs to be that needs to be relearned or there needs to be a reeducation of what exactly a disaster is and how it can creep up on us. Addition, in addition to what Sid says, in more recent times, like without having more transparent science of what's all taking place and how we are determining what disasters, yeah. um, specifically, like you said, I think that we've been um, possibly um, getting numb to what a disaster is. And so it's maybe not as, um, you know, 50 years ago, if there was a forest fire, it maybe got a lot more attention because it happened less frequently. And now every year we're experiencing flooding events and we have very harsh winters now in parts of the United States, at least. And then we're having more fires on the western coast. And like now that's getting more light um, because of that. So. Yeah. And to add to I mean, I agree with what both Lauren and Sid said, but to add to that, I think people think that when it comes to disaster policy, we're only thinking about during the disaster. Mm-hmm. We don't think about how policy should also shape pre-disaster and post-disaster um, actions and responses. So that's a big gap, I, I think, when it comes to uh, disaster preparedness, because we just respond to it. We don't actually prepare for it. We prepare to respond for it, but like not Think about like yeah, yeah not think about preventing yeah. or mitigating a lot of the effects of these disasters. That's huge. I totally agree. I mean, there's it's it feels sometimes like it's a hurry up and wait kind of situation, but you need that. Um, and you know, these things are happening more and more frequently. And it's uh, you know, I'm sometimes struck by well, how how are we not better prepared for these now? Like if something has happened and it's you know a once in a fifty year or a hundred year event, all right, it. it no one was prepared for it, but these these patterns and disasters are are really something that we're living with now. And it, I'm surprised that there isn't more um, talk about, you know, all right. So this is this is how hard it is to recover from from this based on the systems we have. How can we change the system before it happens again to be more resilient and and to be able to. Um, influence and encourage recovery even before a disaster happens. And those are all just excellent points. And thank you guys for sharing those. And see, you're worried about not being experts. You're already ahead of most of them. But I, I want to pick up on something you, you mentioned also about how um, you know we're, we're preparing to respond to the disasters, but not actually preparing to the disasters. And I actually wrote that down because I'm going to co-opt that <laughs> and use it. But I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit more about that, because I think you're hitting on a really, really fundamental point in the way we look at it. Because, right, we, we have grants for disaster preparedness and building stockpiles of antivirals and pharmaceutical response to uh, bioterrorism and infectious disease. Um, we have budgets for FEMA and preparedness grants, but it, it sounds like what you're getting at is that that's only one piece of the policy portfolio that needs to be looked at for this. So um, do I understand that right? No, yeah, I, that's I, think, I think you're right. And I think what Mima uh, and Jenna were talking about was uh, resiliency yeah. of urban centers and of rural centers to disaster and disaster preparedness. Because, um, you know, I think in the past 10, 15 years, there, there have been these metrics floating around. And there have been these evaluations of, uh, of regions where they're looking at how there is um, a transformation of sustainable development. There is this movement towards a, a, a more sustainable city. They're looking at economic growth. They're looking at social welfare. They're looking at environmental, uh, environmental amelioration. But one of the things they're not looking at is 
how is the city going to be resilient against this dynamic climate, this very, very dynamic environment? Um, you know, there's there's the whole what Jeff brought up. There's a the whole uh, aspect of getting grants for preparedness and for stocking up on food and shelters and all of that stuff. But there's very little resiliency built into current infrastructure. There's mm-hmm. very little resiliency built into um, the the natural resources. There's ver- there's this very um, there's this lack or shortage of resiliency built into our everyday systems. And I think that's that's important because when we're looking at recovery, uh, it's the everyday systems that we need to get back to. Puerto Rico right now is facing a major uh, crisis because, you know, their electrical grid is down and that's an everyday system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was no uh, there was no resiliency in their electrical grid. And um, that's, you know, they're going through a crisis right now. Yeah. Yes, it's totally right. Um, coming from uh, a country, for example, where natural disasters are something that's a cycle. We have populations in cities that are in the cycle of just um, recovery and they can't recover because um, the next storm is going to come. Mm -hmm. So we have this whole infrastructure where it's just getting bombarded every so often of climate impacts and and climate-induced disasters that can't recover because their systems were not resilient to begin with. So we have to be able to think about how we incorporate resiliency, not just to um, countries that are like the United States, for example, where a lot of these disasters are more long-term. There's a big, uh, uh, a longer recovery period, unlike the Philippines and um, cities in the Philippines where there's basically no recovery period. Yeah. So this is something that we have to think about when it, when it comes to adaptation, climate adaptation, uh, climate resiliency, and basically just um, developing disaster policy. How do we um, incorporate that kind of cycle of just um, disaster and then recovery and then disaster again. Because it's a huge quality of life issue, yes. too. I mean, you are constantly living in temporary housing. Exactly. You, you might not have access to fresh water, to reliable electricity, to reliable medical care, because um, your systems are always under attack and, and you're always focused on surviving mm-hmm. um, instead of actually living. Yes. And, and so it's... Um, obviously an issue to the people it's happening to but then as from a uh, economic standpoint for the country as a whole you know you have to keep pouring money into these recovery efforts instead of developing these um, places in a way that could actually can then contribute to the growth of of the nation as a whole and to additionally to what jenna said like economically like it's harder for businesses and then Mm -hmm. if you're a developer is it more expensive or there are there not incentives incentives to build more sustainable or to build more resilient um type of buildings that can out that can withstand some of these climate Mm -hmm. impacts that are happening and especially like in houston everyone knows if there's a hurricane there gas prices go up and that's an everyday for people who rely on that Mm -hmm. network of different industries working together but then to like um, some people would say like after floods and events that take longer, like you have a longer recovery period, people are also very forgetful that of all the things that took place and what it all takes to get back to some normalcy after an event. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, you know, you guys are bringing up a lot of great things about policy around the built environment and the stewardship of that. Um, Lauren, you mentioned Houston. I know you mentioned you're from there. Right? Yes. Yeah. And that Houston's always been very controversial with this, right? Being in such a floodplain, being so developed, mm-hmm. but also having systems in there that are, are um, developed and sort of accustomed yeah. <laughs> to being hit by hurricanes as well, too. I mean, in the context of what you see now, I mean, what, what would be your recommendations to um, whether it's emergency managers or people in the field with disaster policy, or maybe it's to people outside of the field that pay attention to disasters and the vulnerability we build. But but uh, from what you guys are seeing, and, and maybe Lauren, if you could start um, thinking, maybe um, not to get you to speak on behalf of everyone in Houston, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, looking at that specifically and the examples of the hurricanes going on now, what lessons does this give us for long-term policy? Um, For long-term policy, I think that um, some of the things in Houston that have been kind of helping to push forward are like, should there be a policy about building in floodplains in other cities and other states? um, There are policies for that. And in Houston, um, we're now um, becoming more aware that building in floodplains is not necessarily okay, whether it's the 100, 200-year, 500-year floodplain. And so um, taking that into consideration for new developments is very important and then additionally um 
just response. Um, the city is so broad and widespread. So just having um, responsive units and being prepared for that, especially when you know hurricane season is about to start coming up, um, knowing that you need um, people in different areas because in Houston, we have such a car heavy transit system mm-hmm. that um, people have uh, passed away in um, going into high water or you just actually can't get to a certain area of town simply because of high water on roads and that's our only way of getting there. So just kind of having um, probably sections and it could be used within the um, commissioner districts, the precincts, they could utilize it that way. But um, just also um, from one thing that I found out is just the education to people so that they understand what's happening and they're better able to not just think, oh, it's just a rainy storm. I've had friends that days before a hurricane, hours before it hits, we're still gonna go meet up, we're still gonna go hang out and do something, and that's probably not in our best interest. But like, <laughs> it's something that if people were more educated about it, you would probably take it a little bit more seriously and prepare your house, prepare your car for gas, and make sure that if you need to leave, that you get out of there, so. Yeah. And what do you guys think in terms of policy? When we talk about disaster policy, a lot of folks think of FEMA, things like that. Who are some of the other actors involved with this? Who would you want to see maybe infusing disaster thinking into the DNA of their policy? I think I just used two metaphors (laughs) in the same. All agencies, I think. Um, My experience um, with, like, say, Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, uh, Typhoon Katsana in 2009, um, both of them in the Philippines, which would really like just hit our country very hard um we we basically learned that disaster policy should be something that's interdisciplinary and very holistic and should be integrated into all departments not just say the national disaster recovery council or the the climate change commission or the department of environmental and national resources it should be part of like the department of the interior even foreign affairs education Disaster policy should be integrated into that because you can't successfully mitigate the effects of disasters and respond to disasters if you don't incorporate all of um, all of the basic things. Basically, like for example, a lot of the people in Typhoon Haiyan died, six thousand of them, because they could not understand what storm surge meant. Mm-hmm. The communication just wasn't there. The the language and the education about what a storm surge meant wasn't there. But if we had said tsunami, they would have, um, they would have understood that water is going to come. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a big gap between mm-hmm. a lot of these other agencies in responding to disasters and basically developing disaster policy. Mm-hmm. So that for me is very important. That's something that we learned the hard way in the Philippines. I'm going to add a, a little bit to what Mima said because she's right. And I'm going to propose something a little radical in terms of like disaster policy development. Uh, let's just assume, and this is something we, you know, we're all students of economics. So let's just assume that, you know, disaster is um, uh, as equal as war. Like the effects of disaster are also equal to the effects of war. In wartime, there are these, you know, price ceilings that are put uh, put up by the government. There are these controls and regulations put up by the government. Now, when a disaster strikes, there is a shortage of supply. There is an increase in demand for basic necessities. And so if you, if you start regulating prices, if you start regulating health, uh, the, you know, uh, medical supplies, you are allowing a greater access uh, for people to, um, you know, buy those supplies or get those supplies because yes, you, you have FEMA, but, you know, you have FEMA coming in and helping out the people in need. But, you know, what about places that are uh, extremely inaccessible that still need those goods and only can do the, uh, can only access those through through uh, monetary transactions or something like that? So I think Mima is extremely right. There needs to be this coordination and communication and finances and disaster preparedness. Um, and there also needs to be like on ground experts yeah. Uh, because. Yeah, you can send out the you know disaster responders, but what about sending out scientists to actually evaluate the like the direct impact of the disaster right after the event of the disaster? So stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Similar to like if there's any sort of like if there's an oil leak or there's pipes that have bursted or if there's any intrusion of a contaminant into a water system, like how is that affecting people's recovery of that? And then also to to the point that you make, like they do um, they allocate funds for war before even any combat or any 
anything is any boots are on the ground and so i think to what we were talking about earlier just like being prepared and allocating money for this so that instead of congress having to go and create a budget for that there's a budget that exists and it's instead of it being it's for that true rainy day that could take place Mm -hmm. instead of um we have to figure out how we're going to snag money from everybody else instead of holistically everyone should be contributing to that fund so that instead of it being a surprise we're having a climate event a severe (laughs) weather event we have money to deal with that because we want to make sure that it's not a problem and we can recover so that we can get everything back to where it needs to be for people to have quality of life and to have the economic turnover that we like to see i think i would um like to take everything you guys have said and then like copy that down to local levels of government mm-hmm. as well um city coordination mm-hmm. um is can be just as siloed and um it, it depends on the city but very often like if you have um something like a heat wave that comes through um the it, people can die because they don't know for example you don't know where some of the vulnerable populations are in your mm-hmm. city you um, again it comes back to education maybe people who um, have limited mobility or maybe don't have air conditioning in their house don't know where they can go when it gets to be above a certain temperature um, so um, I think making sure that these systems are in place and you're encouraging people to have this knowledge before a climate event or a, nat- a natural disaster strikes um, and having that level of integration and coordination between entities at multiple levels is something that I would I think I would like to see policy wise. Yeah and I, I think you guys hit on a lot of this from the community level all the way up to national and even international levels there's a lot of stakeholders in this a lot of people with hands on different levers of, of influence and I always uh, like to think of it as, uh, you know, disaster policies like this Rubik's Cube of other policies. You can't change one side without, you guys know the Rubik's Cube, right? Yeah. So, I've never solved one. Feeling older and older. Yeah, no, I've never solved it. Well, and with disaster policy, you can't solve it the way you solve a traditional Rubik's Cube by taking the stickers off and then putting them putting all them on, on yeah. one side, right? That's no. really smart. <laughs> Hold <Yeah>. on. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, but um, so I think, um, you know, just uh, one more question. And it's actually something that's been bothering me for a while, and I don't have an answer to it. Um, I'm naturally assuming you guys will be able to answer it in a podcast. Mm-hmm. Is um, you know, we have a lot of our policies. We know what will make communities more resilient. We don't know everything, but we know a lot about what will make people more resilient. We know a lot about what what actions will lead to more lives being saved. We know a lot more about how. You know, it's not just about disaster relief, but it's about how we build the environment around us. Um, I saw a a good article recently that talked about, um, I think it was actually in the Houston area, on how they had bought up a lot of properties to prevent Mm -hmm. development in flood areas, but Mm -hmm. they had actually developed more properties in other flood-prone areas that are outpaced. And there are all these different incentive structures that go into it. And good disaster policy, I think, ultimately gets to a point where it's in conflict with efficient markets. Um, underlying freedom of choice value systems um, and is not reconcilable with two, four, six-year election cycles and quarterly earnings reports for businesses. Um, and uh, we had the ambulance go by just now for effect. So <laughs> yeah. This is a big problem. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I ask for that too. So I guess in the next couple of minutes, how do we, how do we think long-term about this and sort of going into the policy field, how do you reconcile competing interests and short-term incentive structures with these longer-term policies that require not only one stakeholder to think long-term, but in some cases many, many stakeholders to think long-term and to agree on the importance of this. How do we sort of tip the scales on that? Um, So coming from my background of where I used to work at, I worked for a nonprofit in Houston, and so um, we worked on ecosystem service work and the Obama administration did have a memorandum where they required all agencies within um, under the federal government to develop plans for how they were going to incorporate or figure out ecosystem like incorporate ecosystem services into what they do and if you don't know anything about ecosystem services it's natural capital so like what is the monetary value for the environment and then um, within that, and you could look up Costanza, he has great papers of ecosystem services and the quantification of that. But one thing um, that is um, very much close to hurricane um, address, addressing um, 
climate-related issues and disasters is avoidance cost and replacement cost. So if you were to put this building here, what is the economic impacts of that? But then like, what is the avoidance cost if you are saying for the insurance, the insurance said that this costs $2 million, what was the avoidance cost of just building it better and things like that? So I think that that's a policy and there's more science that needs to be behind that and more manpower and just people who understand that and can communicate that to decision makers. But I think that, um, putting those two things into context of like how this can be avoided and then addressing policies and changes so that you can make sure that you're minimizing the cost of what it what happens when a natural disaster does take place. Lauren is absolutely right. Uh, money talks. Um, there is a big, you know, this uh, disconnect between long-term policy and short-term gain. Uh, but if you were to show that the you know, long-term policy uh, will save you big bucks in, in the long run, I think it, it, it does speak volumes. Um, there's also, you know, adding to that, there, I think there's also now we can effectively take real life case studies. Let's take Irma, Harvey. Let's take, uh, you know, what happened during Katrina. Let's take um, the California wildfires that are happening right now and say, this is billions of dollars worth of damage. This is millions of people losing livelihoods and homes and, and days and of days off because people off, weren't going yeah. to work days so of people not getting a lot education. of just lo- loss of productivity and and you know we we now have these palpable case studies that we can point to and say we weren't prepared for this we need to be prepared for the next one and the next one seems to be happening a lot more frequently than we thought it did so you know i think by pointing to those um current case studies by talking about you know the monetary gain of long-term long-term resiliency i think maybe we we might be able to um convince a few not all but convince a few yeah we'll take what we can get yeah i think going on uh, i guess the same money track from from an energy perspective it's very encouraging that renewable the price of renewables and installation of renewables and distributed generation in general um is just it keeps dropping it keeps getting cheaper and cheaper there are still um you know a number of incentives for it but it's becoming uh, incredibly competitive and it's becoming something that people want and um, it's something that um, luckily, um, you know, we are going to, to be adding more of it to our infrastructure. And so, um, I mean, renewable energy generation has its own issues with, with distribution. The sun's not always shining, wind's not always blowing and things like that, but it adds resiliency to a grid that is otherwise not very resilient right now. So, um, from, from my perspective in, in the energy world, um, the, the, continued proliferation of distributed energy, I think, and, and the policies from, from you know, local up to national level um, that um, hopefully will continue to support the installation and, and the use of, of renewables. So um, that's something that I'm, I'm hoping continues forward policy-wise. Yeah. Diverting from the economics discussion for a bit, because even though that's very important, another problem that I have seen is actually implementing policies that have been made. So we have, like, there are some cities, some countries with very good disaster preparedness policies or climate resilience policies, but can't really implement it very well because economics and other stuff. Um, But one thing that I've seen work in a lot of um, the um, zero zero dead rates in natural disasters, um, natural disasters is um, participatory governance. It's very important that you include all levels mm-hmm. of government, including non-state actors, into making these decisions and making sure that these are implemented. In Haiyan, for example, we had probably what, about two counties that had zero deaths, and that was because everyone was involved in evacuation and response. Um, and these were very small counties. Um, and also one of our best um, regions in the Philippines for disaster preparedness also usually has zero death deaths count. Um, in natural disasters, and that's because all agencies are involved, all organizations are involved, from the smallest kid to the uh, the most senior official. So that's very important, I think, to implement implementing all the policies that we want developed. Mm-hmm. It's just to have everyone on board and on deck. Well, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time to talk through this. I mean, I, it's really great to sort of hear these perspectives. And uh, please, for the love of God, do not leave this field. <laughs> <laughs> keep, we 
doing. That, we get that a lot, actually. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we always get that. Yeah, keep keep doing this work. It's really, really wonderful that you're looking at this and that that this kind of disaster resilience, this kind of disaster relief, is in the policy thinking. Um, and uh, you know, please, uh, you know, let's keep in touch. I'd love to, you know, keep the conversation with you guys going. And and it's uh, um, I just really had a lot of fun just having this panel. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This is great. Joining me now is Daniel Aldrich. Daniel is a professor and director of the Security and Resilience Program at Northeastern University. He's published several books and more than 40 peer-reviewed articles and also written op-eds of uh, New York Times, CNN, many international and national publications, and also frequently serves as a subject matter expert on disaster recovery and building social capital. Um, his research has been funded by the Fulbright Foundation, the Abe Foundation, the National Science Foundation. He's carried out more than five years of field work in Japan, India, Africa, and in the U.S. along the Gulf Coast. Daniel, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, can you talk to us uh, just to start out a little bit about your work? And um, I think you have really blown the doors open when we think about disaster preparedness and disaster resilience, where it was previously a field focused a lot more on engineering in the built environment, and you brought this real human aspect to it. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and kind of how that came to be? Sure. So actually, this all began back in 2005. My family and I had moved from Boston to New Orleans, and we had six really good weeks down in New Orleans in our new home in Lakeview before Hurricane Katrina arrived. And with her arrival and the floodwaters and the collapse of the levees, we lost our home, our car, all of my computer records. And that kind of threw me for a loop, but also gave me a chance to think really hard about what I saw going on in my own life as someone who had been through a major disaster, and then watching the processes, both of federal government aid, in my case, which was about six and a half months delayed coming in, we had no private insurance at the time, almost all the help that we got in that first semester when Tulane was shut down really came from friends, friends of friends, people that knew who we were, communities of faith around the country and even around the world, actually. So that, that moment for me really shifted my thinking, both about what it means to recover, but also the factors behind it. So I had this vision in the olden days that if there's a disaster, it's FEMA's job to come in and help us out. It's the government's job somehow to come in and provide housing or whatever. What I really saw was that it was the connections that we had that tied us together that brought in those, those kinds of offers of aid, of psychological support, of job offers, of places to stay. And since that point, back in 2005, I've been really lucky. I spent a number of years now abroad studying how these social networks, the ties that we have, really help us out during major catastrophes, whether in Japan, in India, in the Gulf Coast, uh, here, or even in Boston, actually, the project last year on the Snowmageddon back in 2015, uh-huh. and we had about 20 feet of snow in just a few days. And our findings are pretty, pretty consistent. And what we've seen is that basically in a community or a city, well, we often imagine resilience is going to come from the physical infrastructure, the bridges, roads, ports, railroads, and that kind of stuff. In reality, it's the individuals operating the system. It's the people who live nearby. It's the residents. Um, we actually had a talk just a few minutes ago with an MBTA operator who talked about it. They had a great plan in place for all the physical equipment, but no plan in place for the individuals who work there. So they're told to be there at 5.30 a.m. on one of those mornings. Nothing was running. There are no buses running. There's four feet of snow on the roads already. So the system really didn't think through, what about the individuals themselves? How do they play a role in it? What information do they have? How do they self-organize? And my work really has tried to understand the roles that these connections play in both surviving disaster but also recovering afterwards. Now, that, that's really interesting, and I think it's also a really important point, right, that we put so much faith in the built environment, um, but at the end of the day, it's people, right? Planning is people, response is people, and, and what are the individual interactions with that? Um, you know, I, I, a lot of the terms that get thrown around, and I'm sure that I misuse them on a daily basis, of social capital, social cohesion. So sort of from an uh, academic perspective, how, how is that quantified? How do you sort of look at that, and how would you sort of define that as something, as maybe an element of disasters? Sure. So I'd begin by thinking through the different types of ties that we have. And most of us use really three categories of social capital. Uh, The first I'd call bonding social capital, the second is bridging, and the third is linking. And bonding social ties connect people who are quite similar. So perhaps individuals who went to school together, they had the same religious background, ethnicity, maybe they speak the same language, they have the same interests. 
Uh, and that's pretty common. We find around the world where there are developed to developing countries, bonding ties are the most common. Uh, then the second type of tie is bridging ties. And these are ties often on a single interest or a single institution. So, for example, maybe I'm living in India, in Tamil Nadu, on the coast there. I'm a fisherman, but occasionally I do business with someone from a different caste or a different ethnicity through my union, my fisher's union. Uh, or maybe I meet someone else at a noble nearby association or a building. The same thing here in North America. You know, Typically, we may have friends who look like us and sound like us, but maybe our church, our synagogue, our mosque, we join a football club, we have friends at a bar nearby, there are clubs that we go to. So those are ways we meet people with different backgrounds and different associations. And then finally, I would say we have linking ties as well. And where bonding and bridging are very much horizontal ties. So the friends that I have, they're like me. My acquaintances, my, my weaker ties are different than me. Those are pretty people with the same level of power and, and authority. But l vertical ties, these linking ties, those are ties with someone who has that kind of ability to make a difference. Uh, think about a head of FEMA or the president of a country or the head of an organization, maybe university or the Red Cross, or even someone up in the organization that can help you. So those linking ties also matter. And what we can do is we can measure these in different ways. Uh, you know, for bonding, bridging, and, and linking, we can use both what we call associational measurements and behavioral ones. So associational might be the cognitive approach. Uh, if I ask you, for example, if there's a problem tomorrow, to whom do you turn? Uh, or if your neighborhood had a challenge with you know, kids writing their music late at night or some kind of crime wave, what would you do to solve it? I look through those responses to see you know, where are they turning? Are they turning to each other to solve those problems? Are they turning to authorities to solve the problems? But I also could measure that, right? I could do a social network analysis. I could ask you for the names, at least first names, let's say, of 10 best friends, and then ask them for their 10 best friends and try to build sort of literally a map of who you know. I could ask you questions about the number of hours you spend volunteering or giving blood, if you voted recently, if you trust your neighbors. So I could ask all kinds of questions to get at these questions, uh, these ideas of bonding, bridging, and linking. So I think we have a pretty big battery. Some colleagues and I are actually developing right now a new way of mapping our communities. Uh, a great system we have right now is called SOVI, which is more or less Social Vulnerability Index. And that's Dr. Susan Cutter at, at South Carolina did a fantastic job uh, thinking through how do we measure, in North America at least, these uh, sort of vulnerabilities in communities, mostly demographic vulnerabilities, uh, things like people from foreign countries, English as a second language, the elderly, and so forth. We think there are actually existing measures in the census and other publicly available data that capture these kind of questions. And we've developed actually a 29-measure metric that, we called, uh, that we're calling SOCI, Social Capital Index, which focuses just on this question of to what degree our communities, our neighborhoods, our blocks connected to each other and then to vertical, vertically to people in decision power. And again, what we've, we've tried to do in our work, quantitatively and qualitatively, is show how these measurable ties that we have, the depth of them, their breadth, then turn into different outcomes. I'll just give you one quick example from Japan. As everyone knows, uh, now almost seven years ago, on in March 11, 2011, there's a massive earthquake followed by a tsunami, and then unfortunately nuclear power plant meltdowns at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. So 18,500 people lost their lives on that day. A tremendous uh, loss of life along the coast. But we noticed early on that some communities, some neighborhoods and cities did a much better job of keeping people safe. There are much lower levels of mortality there. We tried to understand what would drive mortality during the tsunami. And we had all kinds of answers that we gave, you know, with the power of the tsunami, how high it was, seawall protection from engineering and infrastructure, demographics. It turned out actually one of the best predictors we had was levels of ties in those communities beforehand. Communities with more ties, with more trust, more interaction, they worked together in the 40 minutes between the earthquake and the arrival of the tsunami to save lives. This was holding everything else constant. And this is the kind of stuff that we're trying to do now in other uh, situations as well, understanding, for example, right now, mortality levels, recovery levels, looking very closely at, of course, the typical explanations of engineering, infrastructure, uh, and so forth, you know, demographics, income, so insurance, but also really doing our best to capture these um, not-so-intangible ideas that what really drives the process of survival and recovery might be our neighbors, people who live nearby, friends, kin, and that kind of stuff.
Yeah, you know, it's uh and I've always been fascinated by by the work as well too and how that translates translates out into sort of uh, uh describing something that I think is inherently felt by a lot of folks that on how important community is and actually being able to understand that and measure that. Um I know uh we were both recently at a meeting in in Montreal focused on urban resilience and uh one of the things you mentioned um in your presentation there was about also how political capital and um I think that's in that that vertical um capital you mentioned is is uh, a big factor in recovery. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and being able to sort of activate more of the federal or national or international resources with recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So we were measuring in Japan after the same disaster, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns, how 40 communities along the coast built back or didn't build back both the residential aspects of their lives, housing, occupancy, debris removal, but also the business and infrastructure questions, are gas lines back on, electricity lines back on, convenience stores are open, medical services are running. We had a number of, I think, 17 different ways of measuring these recovery indices. And then we looked really closely at not only these questions of how much money did they have and their budget and all that kind of stuff, but also what kind of connections did they have in the central government in Japan. And we looked really closely at what we called these daijin in Japanese, powerful representatives, people who'd been in power in, uh, in their positions in Senate for at least six terms consecutively, much in the way that in North America, of course, in our Senate, for example, the longer you're there, the higher ranking you are in these committees, Ways and Means Committee, Armed Services, and so forth. And we thought our hypothesis was if your community had elected and kept in power some of these very, very powerful senior politicians in Tokyo, even though they were literally thousands of miles away from where you were, they would do their best from their perch in Tokyo to pull the levers of power, to send construction firm contracts back to your area, to send more aid, more assistance, uh, maybe helping uh, move the permitting process along, smoothing out the zoning process. Because, of course, in reconstruction, there are always snags, right? Uh, the most obvious typically post-disaster is that there aren't enough firms, construction firms, to build all the things that you need to build, whether it's residential homes, commercial businesses, and so forth. This is certainly true in Japan. Uh, there's a very small pool of these large-scale firms, and we found that these powerful politicians could kind of nudge the bigger firms, the construction firms, to get back involved in their hometowns. But more than that, a lot of the questions involve things like zoning, permitting, regulation, and these powerful politicians know who to talk to and, in a sense, which wheels to grease to move things forward. What we found was a community that had more of these powerful politicians holding everything else constant, how much money they had, insurance rates, wealth, demographics, all that kind of stuff, the more powerful politicians they had helping them out, the better they would do to the degree that if your community actually had more than double the normal times of these powerful politicians, you would probably build back better in the sense that you'd have probably more roads, more schools, wow. more houses rebuilt. Um, so it's funny. We talk all the time about this idea of building back better. And, of course, we want this to be a bottom-up phenomenon where the community itself gets involved and makes good choices, has a shared vision for the future. You know, there's their own, uh, it's their own plans that are being followed. That's certainly true. But at the same time, they certainly need resources from the outside. And this is where we think that these vertical ties that we're calling the linking ties are so critical uh, to have someone in a position of power who can help you get resources that are simply beyond the means of almost any local or regional government. You know, we find this a lot in uh, emergency planning and a lot of the work that I've done is where, you know, you'll have an industry or even in healthcare, you'll have like a hospital um, uh, uh, industry group that people are used to interacting with and go to and they'll kind of be the go-to on, I guess, maybe the professional social ties. But then the actual requ request process for resources ultimately needs to go through the emergency management agency. It sounds like sort of zooming out a little bit or looking at this more sociologically, it's a similar, similar phenomena, right, where both need to be firing, where you need to have a strong sense of community, but it needs some sort of plug-in with the official request and political processes. Is that fair to say? Exactly. I would say, I mean, the, the most ideal situation for recovery. So let's imagine you've had something like Hurricane Harvey or Irma, I think it's a long list right now, of disasters, yeah. the, the forest fires in California, um, you know, many, many unfortunate tragedies ongoing right now. Uh, in that moment, you'd want both the bottom-up engagement of the community, that is to say they have a shared vision for what they want to do, they'd be involved in the planning processes, they'd be not only just architects and planners, but citizens who live there, talking to decision makers with what they need. But at the same time, that city, that community would be reaching out to the organizations well above them, whether it's you know housing and human services to think through you know are there grants we can get now for more broad scale affordable housing in the community right California can think through reducing sprawl uh, c communities in Florida communities in Puerto Rico could think about the grid itself are there ways now that they can reach out to private firms like Tesla 
and think about rebuilding the grid, not just as it was before, which unfortunately is pretty common, right? And for many years, the mm-hmm. Stafford Act really guided communities, whether it's a hospital being rebuilt or, or roads, to literally rebuild them brick for brick as they were before. Mm-hmm. So I think through what would be the alternative, right? Can we get some flexibility, some creativity, so that the hospital that we build is solar-powered? It's off the ground by 15 feet. You know, it has bays to handle incoming water. It's, you know, it's resilient to this kind of uh, cutting off from power or this kind of flood uh, zone. So those are the kind of moments when you really need both the vision from the bottom, but also, yeah, that top-down ability to guide resources. You know, building back better inevitably costs more. Uh, and most people simply are thinking to themselves, I only want to be back to where I was. I remember yeah. studying the Kobe recovery in 1995. There's a great book by David Edgington about rebuilding Kobe. The Kobe government had a moratorium on building. For about six months, nothing could be built. And there were some really angry homeowners there, really sure. angry. Um, they weren't, you know, they didn't need to wait for assistance from the government. They had private insurance to rebuild. They found some kind of firm, you know, that could come in, and again, pretty hard to do. And they were told, no, no, you have to wait a half year till we're sure about what we're doing next as a community. Now they were really mad, but he argues in the book, I think persuasively, that the the results of waiting, the results of bringing people together, made sure several things: people could move together. The the community had a unified goal but also that you had time for everyone to get some kind of resource allocation, not just people with private insurance, the people who are already doing well beforehand, but thinking through you know, housing for the elderly, housing for the infirm, housing for the poor. Um, those are things that take time to think through. And I, and I know there's always a pressure. You know, Politicians always tell me, you know, our job is to rebuild that quickly. Well, that's part of the story. Um, and mm-hmm. I think you know, Rob Olshansky talks about this all the time. Uh, in the compressed time post-disaster, really we should be thinking through how do we build back in a system that's more resilient? How do we ensure the homes, the businesses, the roads, the ports, whatever we're going to have to ask for help from from the government, whether it's a regional or central government, what are we doing to think through the next disaster, not just building back the way it was? Yeah, and I think that's you know a, a point that hits across so many aspects of disaster response and recovery is this immediate short-term need to get people's lives back on track, to get communities back together, versus longer term and actually how do you build back responsibly and what are the trade-offs with that. Um, I'm curious too. I mean, you, you've done a lot of amazing work along with other scholars out there on you know how to measure these different determinants of response and recovery and what the different factors are within a community. Um, so, But beyond being able to measure and predict, how do we bottle this and actually <laughs> get it into play, right? What, what actions can be taken ahead of time for communities to be more resilient? Yeah, there's some great examples around the country, actually around the globe, of communities that have really embraced both concepts that is, of having unified voice, being cohesive, working together, but also reaching out to decision makers. I'll just give a few. Um, you know, one project that, that I like a lot is coming from San Francisco. Uh, and there, Dan Holmes has done some fantastic work with Neighborhood Resilience, uh, neighbor, uh, Neighborhood Empowerment Network, NEN, which has really begun by telling communities in San Francisco, when the big earthquake comes, there's not going to be aid, maybe for days, Right as you know, liquefaction happens to many areas along the coast, and much of the area they've built on has been on landfill. So we know that's a vulnerable area. As fires may break out, right, their natural gas things nearby. As it, emergency responders can't get in, you'll be working together. So let's build up now your ability to work together. Let's build resilience now. And there are all kinds of cool things they do. They have a neighbor fest program, for example, where the, where the city government will provide money to a community to hold a party, as long as no one's excluded. And there's some kind of discussion at that party of what they're doing right now to get ready right, for that next event, whether it's a fire or an earthquake or a heart attack or whatever. So that, that's one set of programs. So, again, working from the bottom up to build community uh, cognition of what the future, but also a community activation. Um, yeah, and just – Sorry, just for the listeners, too, uh, Daniel Holmesy was a recent guest on the podcast, and, and uh, so we got to hear a lot about sort of the kick of the neighbor fest and a lot of the work that's being done, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, a great example. And I believe you spoke of your research as well, too, so great to see these things connected. But I'm sorry, please. <laughs> sure. Um, so there's another, another Dan in disaster, as Dan Neely. Uh, he works uh, at the Wellington Regional Emergency Management Organization in New Zealand, REMO, W-R-E-M-O, and they've really made it their mission not to sort of be the doom and gloom about disaster preparedness, not to go on the radio or the TV or Skype or whatever or or Twitter and give negative messages, but really to serve as glue in the community. So I watched as about a third of their staff spent most of their day not in the office, but rather embedded in the community, in organizations, in schools, in churches, in mosques, in PTAs, Armenian societies, all kinds of places in in Wellington, to the degree that much of the traffic on Facebook in Wellington goes through their page. 
So if you have an upcoming social event, for example, you advertise on Remo, even though they're a disaster organization. And they're thinking really far ahead because they know if you think of Remo as a trusted partner, if you see them as a conduit for trusted information, when something bad happens, like an earthquake and a tsunami, which are almost inevitable to happen in New Zealand, you're going to go there as well and trust what they tell you to do. If you only hear them literally say things like, we're all going to die, we're doomed, right? get ready, yeah. pretty unlikely you'll be paying attention. But what they've done is built this trust over time so that local communities see them as a partner, as a node in the process. Uh, actually, when I was there, they had a cardboard box race advertisement that they were running wow. on their web. And again, nothing to do with disasters at all. But again, these are college students who knew that everyone would find out about it from Remo and not from their own personal web pages or Facebook or whatever else. So again, that's, that's a bottom-up uh, process that they're using. Uh, one more yeah. example I would give of what communities are doing around the world, and again, these are, I think, pretty cool measurable results, uh, is a project that Emi Kyoto began in Japan. Uh, it's called Ibasho, I-B-A-S-H-O, Ibasho. And in fact, it's been so successful, they now have pilot programs in the, in the Philippines and Nepal. And the idea is really simple. Post-Japan's 311 disasters, many of the elderly and people from communities in Tohoku were in these very, very bland, hot in the summer, cold in the winter kind of FEMA trailers uh, called Kasajajutaku, these temporary shelters. And they'd been moved from their homes, they'd been moved from their communities, which meant there were near no one that they knew. They had no friends nearby, no doctor nearby, really isolating experience. Again, in the best of interests, right, which is getting them out of the danger zone into some new housing that was whole. But the problem, of course, was it cut them off from the social networks. So Emmy had the idea that these elderly uh, survivors of the disaster could run their own physical space, a flexible physical space, that would slowly generate connections in the social space. And so what she did was she convinced a local board of elderly residents in these communities to work with her, and she actually raised money for an American NGO, brought, brought in funds, built a physical space. Uh, and this physical space has all kinds of different uses. It's flex space. So it can be a yoga studio. It can be a library. It can be a cafe. But what she did with, with me was to show individuals from the community who went to Ibasho had better and stronger measures of social capital than those who lived nearby who didn't go. So, for example, measures of efficacy. What degree of input do you think matters from you? Can you change the community? And the answer of people who went to Ibasho was yes, because, again, they'd been involved in planning and managing and logistics and that kind of stuff. People still stuck in their homes didn't leave, not as much. Uh, the, the breadth of social networks, the level of trust in the community, all of those measures went up. Uh, from Ibasho, and again, to the degree that they now have these pilot programs in very vulnerable areas in Tibet and the Philippines. Obviously, the Philippines has all kinds of stuff, among them typhoons. Tibet has both mudslides and earthquakes. But in any case, in, in these projects, what we see is an idea, a really bottom-up idea, that's revolving around the concept that it's neighbors, it's friends, it's, it's connections that make a difference, and they can be built up. Like other stocks of capital can be improved or depleted. These programs, Ibasho, Remo, NEN, and San Francisco, their whole core idea, the theory behind them, is that what we can do is build these connections before disaster comes and be better prepared when it does arrive. Those are, um, you know, great programs out there and I think really inspiring and really great. You know, one theme that I hear, too, within each of these is just the, you know, like if you look around the room and you're all wearing the same government ID, then you don't have the right <laughs> mix of people in the room, right? Like getting right. a lot of different folks in the room, yeah. Um, so, you know, we currently have, as you mentioned before, several recoveries underway and in some cases still in response in Texas, Florida, California, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and that's, those are just a few of the domestic ones. There's earthquakes in, in Mexico, um, all along the Caribbean. Um, and in these recoveries, so these groups that have sort of gone into the disaster, what they already have in place um, and haven't had the opportunity to build this up or, or maybe have, and but you're sort of working from where you're at at the time of a disaster, what would you hope to see in the recovery, um, both at the community level, at the, the national level, um, in light of all this work that you've done? Yeah, I mean, several things. You know, one would be that communities maybe take a breath, maybe not six months like in Kobe, which probably is too much for us Americans, right? But maybe just a breath and think through, okay, you know, we communities, whether it's in Houston or in Florida or Puerto Rico, we are clearly vulnerable now to this previous disaster, whether it's Her or Harvey or Irma or whatever, Maria, but we're also going to be vulnerable to the next one if we keep building as we did before, if the structures we keep in place, if we rebuild as we were. So what can we do now? There's been some really cool discussions in Puerto Rico, for example, um, not of the grid being a federal government process, but of a partnership of the electrical grid between Tesla, for example, solar cell makers, and local businesses and hospitals. So that's one way of thinking it differently. Rather, you know, rather than just building back coal-fired plants or LNG plants and having a centralized grid, 
what can Puerto Rico do, at least, to make itself more prepared the next time that these main power lines do go down? Can hospitals, you know, can water purification facilities have their own power sources that are decentralized? And that's, that's one set of questions. Uh, and again, that's going to take bottom-up work because, again, you have to have the partnership that you build, right? You can't just come in from the outside. You need people sure. on the ground. And the second set of ideas would be something like this. We know Houston was very vulnerable to the flooding here, not just because of one house or two houses, but because literally thousands of homes and developments were placed in areas that were previously marshlands, wetlands, you know, natural shock absorbers for flooding. Houston sort of cut out its own abilities to survive. It reduced its resilience by allowing unfettered development in many areas. And that's been like a 50-, 60-year process now. And there's been colleagues like Robert Bullard writing about the Houston's environmental problems for years. This is one manifestation of those problems. Um, if, you don't, if in the zoning process not thinking through this question of resilience, long-term recovery, sustainability, then you have a moment when all of the non-permeable surfaces that you've built, roads, driveways, parking lots, then become the conduits for destroying houses. I've got my wife and I both have family living in Houston, and both of them watched the waters rose literally from a creek nearby to a lake, right, like 150 feet across of water Mm -hmm. that began to flow into their property. So those are the kind of moments when you think through, okay, Houston, what are we going to do now? Not just build back as we were, you know, get the insurance money and jump right back in, but can we think through, you know, can we con- contain sprawl? Can we, in our zoning processes, think through green sustainable development? And again, here too, how about questions of decentralization, whether it's power systems or other ones? What, what are we doing? And I would say in, in all these disasters, um, the, the, ba- the basic thing I'd be looking for is are the citizens engaged and involved? Not as recipients of information from the city hall or from some outside developer, but rather on all the planning boards. I remember when I was in New Orleans, there were so few residents involved initially in the BYO committee, BYOB committee. Mm-hmm. Almost no, all elites, right? Political elites, academic elites. Um, but you really want someone who knows what they need on a daily basis and the kind of concerns that they have, which could be radically different, right, than some out of town architect or even the mayor, right, thinking about reelection goals. So to make sure that all these processes, zoning, rebuilding, applying for grants, has deep citizen and NGO involvement. And I would really encourage people to think through to what degree are we, each one of us, involved in these questions, even in non-vulnerable areas. Let's say you live, who knows, in the highlands, there's no flooding nearby, but still, to what degree are we making our voices heard? Because I think, again, this is one of the ideas of social capital is efficacy, right? The belief that our voice makes a difference. If we don't allow citizens or don't encourage them to get involved, then the planning is done by technocrats who might be incredibly skilled, but not really understand local knowledge, local metis, as James Scott would say. So I think in all these disasters, we're looking for that bottom-up voice, the organization, and the social cohesion. You know, it's interesting with some of these resilience programs, some of the ones that I think are getting a lot of traction, like Daniel out in San Francisco, they borrow from some of these ideas of local political organizing on how do you bring folks together in an advocacy role and, and things like that. And so it seems there are some lessons from fields even outside our area or my area of emergency management that offer solutions to some of the problems we face in the field. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I think to some degree what you said is exactly right, that in, in reality this planning is really like – uh, almost advocacy, right? You're you're thinking through how do we make sure that the community has a voice in the process? Uh, exactly. That's, that's really critical. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and just really, really fascinating. And um, I encourage everyone to to check out your work. One of the things that I, I really enjoy about it is not only its scientific rigor, but its application, and that it's not not designed simply to describe, but also how to improve. Um, and so, how can people learn more about your work? I know you have a number of books out there that they can follow, and how can they um, how can they um, Keep tabs on you if you're open. <laughs> sure. So uh, several things. Um, I've got a website, actually a few different websites. Uh, one is uh, at Weebly, W-E-B-B-L-Y. Just Google Daniel Aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H. And uh, all my stuff's there for free. There's no firewall. So a number of my articles are there, links to my books. Um, the book I would encourage listeners to think about might be the Building Resilience book that came out in 2012. And if things go well, hopefully next year, I'll have a book on the Japan disasters, the compounded disasters of 311 coming out as well. Um, and then also I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, I do tweet uh, to you, uh, among other people, and uh, trying to get uh, sort of a channel of communication going. Because I think, you know, at the time, again, many people don't think that their ideas might contribute. I think Twitter is a great conversation starter for what are the ideas, what are the best practices out there, maybe beyond my community, someplace in New Zealand, someplace in Japan, what are the people doing? And I think Twitter and uh, those are other social media organizations are great ways of sharing those. 
Great. Yeah, and thanks so much. And, um, and you know, you bring up a good point, and, and maybe we can talk about another uh, uh, subject of another podcast, the social media and sort of the, the how that is really democratizing disaster response in a lot of really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, but, but thanks again for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, most importantly, thank you for doing the work that you're doing and making sure that it's getting out there into the hands of folks. It's, it's really important stuff and I think really turning a lot of assumptions we had on their head, but in the right kind of way. Thank you so much for having me. And there we go. Episode 7, In the Bag. Thanks to Mima, Sid, Lauren, and Jenna for being on our panel to kick off the show. And thank you to uh, Professor Daniel Aldrich for taking us through all of the great work that he's doing. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download fine podcasts. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. You can email us at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter. We're at disasterpolitic. In the meantime, thanks for listening and stay safe out there.